This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Great to have you aboard, and thank you for listening. Every once in a while, I like to go local and bring a terrific friend to these microphones. And today is no exception. He is a radio man through and through, Richard Brody. And he's lived an incredible life both on and off the air. We've worked together in Rich's capacity as a sales executive on radio, a role model to so many others, one of the most successful in his field. But his story is much more radio deep than all that. Like me, Richard Brody has been on the air, working many formats, an engaging, evolutionary time for the radio business. Been heavily involved with the concert scene, and in my estimation is one terrific cataloger of the field that we each love so much, and that's radio. I invite you to settle back, relax, and enjoy a conversation with an old friend who's had his share of cool experiences in radio. Proud and happy to invite Richard Brody to join me now on mic. I want to begin at the beginning, uh, Rich, and talk a little bit about your dad, because I had no knowledge of your background. I know your foreground, not your background. <laughs> Leo Brody, your father, an amazing chap with a lot of accomplishments, and one of them is the co-founder of the Shakespeare in the Park program with Joe Pat. That's right. One of the, the, the two of them were the original, uh, the original partners in it. He was the one, in fact, came up with the, uh, uh, the thought that we would, we would be better off as a not-for-profit than a for-profit organization, which worked out very well for uh, New York Shakespeare Festival. He was an artistic influence on a lot of people, probably on you too, because along with that, he also pioneered a lot of things in the fashion industry. Tell us about that. Originally, he was a surplus dealer. Of course, every town would have an Army-Navy surplus store. Cities would have a variety of Army-Navy surplus stores. There's one right down the street from where I live. I love it. I, I, I know what you're talking <laughs> yeah. about now. Uh, you know, it was it was interesting. You know, a lot of the uh, suppliers would focus on the hard goods, um, gas cans and canteens. And, you know, my father was more into the softer goods, you know, the jackets, the shoes, uh, the undergarments, and um, he hit a home run in 1965-66 when he purchased all of the Australian Army lightweight khaki jackets. Mm. They were belted. They had a belt around the middle of them. Sort of like the Eisenhower look, or short, or Eisenhower would have been longer. This was oh. the Australian bush jacket. Okay. This was his introduction to the industry, the Australian bush jacket. And at the same time, the boutique industry was starting as well. So now, all of a sudden, in addition to the Army Navy stores, he's also selling to this burgeoning boutique industry. And if you also remember, especially in the '60s, '70s. Every town had a place where teens would buy their bell-bottoms, their flares, their denims, their jeans, their tie-dyes. And uh, this was the other industry that he started selling to. And uh, next came going to Britain and buying all of their jackets. They were all white with a high neck and he brought them back and dyed them all different colors, called it the Nehru jacket. Oh, my goodness. That is huge. Ken Harrelson in the dugout, 1967, 68, wearing That's a right. Nehru jacket. That's my right. first introduction as a kid. So your dad was, was very much an influencer, if you will, if I can use that term. Yeah, yeah. He uh, ended up with a very successful jean company and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 
we went from a lower middle class family to an upper middle class family, you know, all, you know, based on these things that I'm I'm describing to now, you. Now, New York is where you're from, right? That's right. Okay, I'm, so that was an era, I mean, from the 60s, 70s, in that era, when so much was happening culturally in the world, but in New York as the center. I mean, you had Greenwich Village and Soho and all those great artistic places. Did that have an influence on you growing up in that area? Yeah, sure, it certainly did. First of all, you know, with my dad, you know, being so important to that boutique industry, it was such a, a charge for a... Uh, a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old, to be able to go into these very well-known boutiques, limbo on St. Mark's Place <laughs> in New York, and and the owners would know me, and I'm just a young kid, and, uh, you know, it's a pretty heady thing, you know, to be able to go to Chicago and, uh, you know, to be known by some of these people, or San Francisco, or Miami, you know, and uh, uh, so, yes, it... It was. I also had an older brother who was very involved, and that older brother was very involved with the music of that time as well. So next thing you know, as a very young person, I'm getting exposed to all of that music that's originating in Greenwich Village. And originally that was the folk music scene, which expanded to the psychedelic and progressive music. And, uh, you know, I was involved with that as well. You were. And one of the reasons we're having you here, besides the fact that I really consider you a great friend and a wonderful conversationalist, is the fact that uh, in in our business, uh, it, in the art of broadcasting, you've done it all. Uh, I've only known you mainly as a top flight, if not the best in the business, radio uh, advertising sales professional who's just knocked it out of the park. But I didn't realize until you provided me with this background info about all the radio you did and did on, up until recently. I mean, on air. Radio. On air. That's, of course, <laughs> you know, nobody nobody starts by going, I'd like to go into radio sales. Uh, you know, it's all on air. And at that time, there was this seven-year window where progressive radio on burgeoning FM was a big, big deal. Not a big deal amongst numbers of listeners, but a big deal amongst a certain type of listener. Mm. And uh, and I was involved with that. We had a, a podcast dedicated to the WBCN story uh, a couple of podcasts ago. And talk a little bit about where you were specifically during that era and some of these small stations doing the kind of things you were doing. I know you worked at a station in Cambridge, famous for years, WCAS. And this is, again, when local radio mattered. But can you share some stories of those days? Yeah, I'm so glad you bring up WCAS. Prior to WCAS, I was at the FM Progressive Station in Maine, uh, which was WBLM. And I was there for a number of years. And uh, um, and then, uh, you know, to be able to get back to Boston, uh, you know, I came in as a sales rep. Uh, You know, I just wanted to be at a radio station in Boston. And at that time, the first one was WNTN, which was in Newton, AM 1550. It was a progressive format. Sam Copper was on the air. Sam Copper, famous for his work at WBCN yes. later. And by the way— And before. And before. And yeah. by the way, WNTN is uh, is an AM station. That's right. As it, is WCAS. WCAS, <laughs> while it was a low-power station, had a great compressed signal. It was between RKO and HDH at that time at AM right. 740. Right. And I always use the phrase, it sounded like Harvard Square. You know, if Harvard Square were to have a sound, it would sound like WCAS did. You know, this combination of 
uh, outlaw country and folk and jazz and progressive rock and this mixture of it with these great, great announcers, uh, you know, uh, names included Rick Starr, Lisa Carlin, um, Don Cohen, Mo Shore, Matt Schaefer, um, Judith Brackley, uh, Frank Dudgeon. These were great, you know, and, and all of them, you know, had control of how mm-hmm. they would like to structure their programs. I myself did the jazz show on the weekends, mm-hmm. but I was uh, a seller as well, a, a seller of the radio air That's show. so interesting because in those days, the disc jockey, first of all, playing real discs, LPs for the most part, but you did have that creative energy and allowance to add your take on the music and on the times. It wasn't just about the music either. It was so important. It really was. And, uh, you, know, you know, that's actually how you expressed yourself even more than opening up the microphone. Mm. You know, now you, of course, uh, you know, you've specialized in an open microphone for six hours at a time. <laughs> yes. now, that's very, very different. You know, uh, I, <laughs> I remember one time, uh, you know, my roommate, former roommate, uh, Billy West with WBCN. Love Billy. He's also been a guest here. I, Love and him. Uh, he, he was telling me about a conversation he had with Jerry Williams. And Jerry's going, how's that Charles Aquadera doing? He hides behind the music. He hides <laughs> behind the music. That's what he does. You know? Yeah, Jerry Williams, a longtime radio legend, particularly in Boston, but also Philly and Chicago. And uh, one of the great talk radio guys and a, a personality larger than Vermont, but uh, that's that's <laughs> so a wonderful true. that's a wonderful story. There's there's a story about you doing, and this is only again um, applying to a certain mindset. Driving hours and hours to come in and do an overnight show, and then driving back hours and hours. What happened? Seventy three through seventy five. I was working for my family's business, uh, you know, the uh, and they were based in Chinatown, New York City. But I didn't want to be in the garment industry. I didn't want to be in the family business. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wasn't too impressed with either of them. So, you know, okay. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I wanted to be in radio. And in order to do that, I, I wanted to make sure I kept my very important college radio station show WMFO at Tufts University. Still still on the dial at those call letters. And uh, I wanted to make sure I was – so what I would do is I would leave Manhattan uh, and drive through rush hour. Oh, God. And get up to WMFO in Medford and go on from 12 midnight to 4 a.m. I'd get a little bit of sleep and then I would drive to WBLM. At that time was in Lewiston, Maine, Sabatis, Maine. I would do Saturday 6P to 12 mid. And Sunday, 12 noon to 6 p, and then start the return trip to New York City. Now, that doesn't sound unusual to me because I've been there, and I would say there are pioneers like you and me, not just all old guys, but pioneers who know what that is. But for so many people in this current world, it's like, what? Are you nuts? Talk to people, for example, who are actors or who are dancers uh, who will agree to do performances at no charge just for the possibility of the exposure, just to be able to maybe someone will see someone who will tell someone. It was that important to me. And that was how hard it was to get into the industry back then. Indeed. We're talking with Richard Brody, a dear friend and 
I'm going to call you, um, and I think this is the highest compliment, a renaissance man because you not only love the career in general but all the specific little spindles that you've had a chance to do, including acting because you just mentioned uh, theater and and, uh, all that uh, briefly. But tell tell us about your acting chops and where you did that. I started in uh, college as as a freshman in college and, uh, you know – I, I had joked uh, to that uh, to a girlfriend at that time and said, you know, you know, they're having they're having auditions for the play David and Lisa. Now keep in mind, I've got the John Lennon little wire rim glasses. I have hair down to the middle of my back. You know, I look like a Jewish Apache. And, uh, <laughs> and she goes, "Oh well, you, you ought to, you ought to, you ought to go and uh, audition for it." You know, I've never been in a production before of significance, and so I. I, I did, and I got the lead role. And with getting that lead role, also came the necessity to cut off all that hair. So mm. uh, you know, and uh, but you know, because you know, I, I had good depth, and because I had good enunciation, because I had good stage presence, I was always able to get lead roles. You know, for my auditions, I ended up with uh, an organization. They were on Boylston Street between Arlington and Berkeley called the Boston Arts Group and BAG. And uh, and there I also acted with a fabulous actor who happened to be a custodian. It was either MIT or Harvard and it was Ben Affleck's father. <laughs> and he was a damn good actor. Apple doesn't fall far. Yeah, but he had to work as a custodian because he had – a child or children here in the Boston area, and oh, he had funny. to support them. And he was a custodian, and which is what they based that movie, uh, Goodwill Hunting, on. That is absolutely a pearl of a story. And let me ask you what that experience in theater, acting, you know, being up on stage or even being behind the mic, what that does for you and had done for you, just in terms of your confidence and your love and passion for the industry. What what does it mean to you to have done that? I'm sorry to say there's not much money in acting based in Boston, you know, unless, for example, you're part of a tour that's going mm-hmm. nationwide, and, mm-hmm. you know, that you're going to participate at, you know, uh, one of the Hollywood shows. But um, I, I, for me, it was just another extension of, of being able to uh, communicate and, uh, you know, a little different because, you know, many times you're working from a script. Sometimes you're in improv, but uh, – um, even in improv, I will share with you, when you find things that work well, that get the reaction from the audience, you tend to use them over and over and over again. So Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That was part of the reason I asked the question. When I, I did a lot of theater when I was young and also music. I learned music. I play piano and all that, all of which helped me do what I'm doing right now pacing, timing. Uh, of course, humor is all about timing. So all of that helped me and getting reaction. And again, when you're on the air, you're generally not getting an actual physical reaction. There isn't an audience in front of you for the most part. So that's why it's helpful to have the audience, in my opinion. That's a great point. Yeah. And uh, that, that does change the dynamic because it is so live and so immediate. Uh, uh, but uh, it, it gets harder and harder as you get older and older, you know, if that's something that you want to do. Uh, you know, if, if you're of a certain age, I suppose you need to be in markets like New York or L.A. in order to express that. 
If it's something, though, that's really important to you, you know, really, you know, from your innermost being, well, you'll be able to act probably anywhere. There's going to be community theater that, you know, you're going to be able to participate in anywhere. So I think it really depends on the person, you know, what is it that is important to you? Right. Um, It's interesting. Uh, When you're in an industry like ours, uh, that has morphed and changed so much since we've been in it. What I've noticed is there's a a separation of powers, if you will, and the idea that somebody in sales or management should also be able to go on air and have fun in the morning with the morning guy is anathema. They don't even they don't even want you in the studio section of the radio station. But you've managed to do that, and I would wish other people, young people, getting into the business through the sales or promotion, and would do that even if they just did it for fun in the production studio later at night and played around a little bit because it's helpful to know what happens on the other side of the glass on both ends for both both groups don't you agree you know for me it was it, it had more to do with those particular morning uh, personalities for example you know one of the things that you alluded to was earlier in my radio sales and you know why i had won all the national awards or the regional mm. awards I would, I would come and start my workday extremely early. I would come in most of the times somewhere between 3.30 and 4 a.m., which, of course, you know, with the commute and waking up and getting ready, means you have to get up a lot earlier than that. But that would allow me to be in the building at a time when only the morning show plus myself are there. And it started with Matt Siegel. Uh, you know, where famous personality in Boston for 35 plus years. Yeah, Kiss 108, who loved making me the foil of incidents or jokes or, you know, set up. You're the Herb Tarleton, if I can drop a name from WKRP. That's <laughs> uh, an awful one. But <laughs> Sorry. <okay. laughs> uh, so, yeah, so he, w- he would call Matt, Matt needs you in the studio. Matt needs you in the studio, you know. So uh, then when I made my shift over, you know, I was at, I was at Kiss 108, you know, better part of 10 years, eight Mm -hmm. years, then came 15 years or so at Mix 98.5. And their morning host was John Lander. And he believed in an ensemble. You know, he believed in like being the conductor of of a symphony. You know, I'd be at my desk, you know, all alone working in the sales area, and I'd hear over the intercom, "Uh, Brody, we're starting the show. Where are you? You know, (laughs) of course, (laughs) that's not part of what I get paid to do. But, you know, for many years I would be in and uh, and part of that morning show. So so you do have a persona in the minds of the listeners. Uh, It, you you know, morphs a bit. It changes a bit from time to time. But you're that guy in that contingent of – people that are part of this family. Yeah, it's funny. I would make sales calls and introduce myself, and next thing I know, the phone would go just silent. Hello? Hello? Is this a nutcracker? And the nutcracker is what John Lander was famous for doing, for, you know, trying to surprise people for something that had been set up in their life, you know, set up by a, a girlfriend or a wife right, or something. Right. But I would do them uh, in case they felt that his voice would be recognized. So, yeah. Those were not that long ago these days that, that were fun days in the business. Uh, of course, there wasn't the, the podcast world to, uh, to, 
bring competition. It was a really different radio time. You're talking about the 90s, right, for the most part? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They exactly. The 90s and the early 2000s, yeah, and, uh, you know, through the mid-2000s or, or, you know, through 2010, yeah. A very big part of what you did in the late 70s to the early 80s had to do with another arm of this industry, and that's the live music arm, the concert arm. I really want to talk to you about some of this. First of all, what was your role as a quote-unquote producer of concerts? And then we'll get to some of the personalities because you got a laundry list of great stars that you worked with. It started by my doing work for uh, somebody locally who was uh, very big in the booking business. He was a major booking agent, uh, national, international. And he wanted me to come to work for him as a booking agent. She had hired me to, for example – can you handle all the advertising? I'm uh, providing all the all the talent for the Vermont Jazz Festival. Vermont Jazz Festival was a big, big mm. deal. Uh, the Vermont Jazz Festival, when one of the things, for example, when when we ended it, um, one of the things we had noticed was how many people from Quebec would come down for it, and that by eliminating the Vermont Montreal. Jazz Festival started the, what is wow. now the world's number one jazz festival, Montreal, Montreal Jazz sure, Festival. Sure, sure. I, I chose not to work uh, and, and declined working for the booking agency. I was committed to radio and radio, you know, just all kinds of things. So he asked if I would be his partner in the uh, concert business. We would set up a concert promotion business. And w- when you're the producer, you're the person who is guaranteeing the money to the artist you're the person who is negotiating with that artist's booking agent. You're the person who is getting the theater, uh, the venue. You're the person arranging for everything from the lighting to the stage managing uh, to the box office. Well, box office is generally provided by the venue. Uh, and the advertising. Now, the advertising back then was very important. Uh, not so much anymore. Uh, my son does concert promotion. And, you know, you know we're – Dollars spent in advertising were extremely important to me. He'll tell me that he's able to sell 2,000 seats just by having a listing on the artist's website. Yeah, or uh, an Instagram post or something. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, all, it's all different. And um, uh, you, you left out one important job, and that is the green M&Ms in the dressing room, the rider. Oh, you, you have yeah. To deal the, with that? The rider. I, uh, <laughs> we had – we had a – one time we were doing a show, uh, rented Fred Taylor's Harvard Square Theater, oh. and it was uh, uh, it was Tom Waits with the opening act being uh, Leon Redbone. Mm. And, you know, in this case, you know, they had asked for a very substantial amount of alcohol in their writer, and mm. next thing you know, now in those days, you know, you do a seven p.m. show and then you do a ten p.m. show. You do two shows. And they informed us, you know, very early on, you know, even before the first show began, that they had run out of alcohol. Could we please replace it? <laughs> so, you know, well, you know, you know, we gave them what they wanted, you know, which was a lot to begin with. Okay, so we went out as in Harvard Square and, you know, loaded up on more alcohol and brought it back in, you know. Toward the end of the first show, we were notified by the tour manager that they have once again run out of alcohol. 
can we please replenish it? And uh, you know, at this point, you know, I think we had spent an extra, I think that time, $2,000. a lot of money in alcohol mm. a second time around. And I mm. said, no, this time you will have to, you will have to take it. Did they of make the second show? Uh, oh, there was no problem with no the issue. second show. We, of course, were blaming it all on the Tom Waits crew, who was stone sober, by the way. It was the Leon Redbone people. <laughs> you know, Tom Waits has this has this kind of persona that yeah, you, know, you, you think would he's... think it was. It wasn't oh, him, and great. it wasn't his people. Over 400 or so shows you produced. I just want to ask you about a couple of people. Uh, one of my favorite people on the planet ever was Stefan Grappelli. Uh, I, I believe he. I always think of him as the Pope of jazz. He's just such a sweet, uh, at least from afar, and he's such a talent. What was it like uh, working that show? Do you remember? You're right to describe him that way. He's very, very sweet man, and mm. uh, you know, I, I, I think we did. I think I might have done him four times. Oh, you know, uh, with yeah. Stefan and uh, uh, his following, of course, was rabid. Uh, for those who don't know, he was. Uh, a jazz violinist, and he was the original partner of uh, Django. Of Django Reinhardt, and he would tell wonderful Django Reinhardt stories. You know? Gypsy jazz. Yeah, Gypsy jazz. Uh, Django could not read or write, so Stefan was uh, the person who had to do this. Stefan, I remember once telling me a story where Django felt that he was being overlooked in uh, in regard to a contract negotiation and objected to the contract. And the manager said, well, I don't understand. What part don't you like? And he took his finger and he just pointed at a piece of paper. He goes, this part. I object to this part. Now, of course, again, he couldn't read or write. The part that he put his finger on was the part that was guaranteeing first-class transportation (laughs) and lodging. (laughs) Well, that's one of the millions of stories from the Naked City. Uh, There's one other name. We could go – everybody's here. I mean, Dexter Gordon's great jazz people, Jerry Jeff Walker, Ray Charles for crying out loud. But what was Pete Seeger like? I mean, he was larger than life, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. You know, sometimes we would have to deal with oversized egos. And, uh, you know, we would have to, uh, you know, get into – negotiations, you know, right before a show would start. And uh, then there's the opposite. Then there's Pete Seeger, who takes the train up from New York and walks from the Back Bay Station to Symphony Hall with the banjo on his back. I love it. And arrives alone. Yeah. And, you know, it's two sold out shows at Symphony Hall. And, you know, Every trade union in the world was contacting us to purchase group amount of tickets for that one. And uh, uh, I I mean, you just couldn't get any, again, sweeter and lovelier. It seems to me in our conversation and knowing you that uh, so much of what has sort of been at the focus of your life is the audience. For the advertising that you've helped people do, it's targeting, getting the right audience mix, making sure it works – for your work on air, for your work as an actor, for your work as a producer, you really do think about the end product and how it's delivered and to whom, don't you? I do, and I think that that's uh, that's kind of the key to it all, especially if we could talk about the advertising for a mm-hmm. quick second. Mm-hmm. I mean, not everybody is going to need a particular product uh, all the time, how, you know, unless it's, say, a grocery item. But in regard to something, say, more specific – if they are going to say, want to go to a concert or show, you want to make sure that your concert or show is 
in their realm of memory and knowledge that they know that it's coming. Um, if it's uh, roofing, not everyone needs roofing all the time, but when they do, you want to make sure that your roofing company is a name that they remember. So, yeah, you know, there's you know, the importance, I also believe, in consistent messaging in regard to the advertising and, and things of that nature. So, yeah. Early bird gets the worm. You said you came in to work, and I know this is true, at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning most days. And what I remark on with my colleagues about you is the incredible attention to detail without making it seem as though you've spent any time doing anything except looking at the stats. You've really done your home. You have to do your homework, especially in this day and age, I would imagine, with so many competing media to uh, to deal with. Well, of course, the details appear to be a lot easier when you're starting that early in the morning and you're so focused and uninterrupted. So, you know, basically, uh, you know, I'm working an 80-hour week while other people are working on a 40-hour week. So, of course, it's going to seem the attention to detail is greater, you know, for the efforts that I'm putting forth. But, uh, you know, that's, you know, I always felt that that was a differentiator. That was one of the ways I could differentiate myself in regard to the rest of the uh, sales world. But before we conclude, I want to get your take. You're a man of media with so much background, so much experience, and you're still involved with so many aspects. You're the state of the state, if you will, and it's a broad question. Uh, Let's just take uh, the radio side and let's take the entertainment radio side, the music side, because we talked a lot about that. Where is it and where is it going with so many alternatives? You know, it's very different now from when you and I, Jordan, came up, you know, where most of them or much of the money is made on single downloads where even CDs have become not as readily available, Mm. you know, Mm. where an artist, you know, will choose, you know, for music downloads. Um, um, You know, so it's much more open to a broad base of people. But, you know, one of the things I love, and I think you love too, is being served the music. Somebody, you know, having listened to it and curated it Mm. and, uh, you know, and then presented to us. I'm still a big fan of that. In regard to the radio industry, by the way, uh, back to live music, live music still remains very important. Of course. Uh, Couldn't agree uh, more. In regard to uh, the radio industry, you know, where you and I were used to so much one voice to many in the audience via radio, all of a sudden, it's shifting more to a digital one-to-one, you know, just mm. one person to one listener. You know, we could say that radio, in regard to the way we used to think of it, we tended to think of it that way anyway, you know, because uh, even though we were reaching many people, we wanted to th- think in terms and visualize it as only reaching a single person. It helped us in regard to guiding. But one of the one of the things that I'm seeing, you know, if Jordan, if you and I go back to the days of, say, AM radio and Top 40 having dominance, we were kind of used to FM cuts, FM artists, and if they wanted to break through onto AM, they had to shorten their songs. It had to be Blood, Sweat, and Tears, a spinning wheel, while it was seven minutes on the album, you know, became two minutes and 45 seconds as they eliminated all of the soloing that Mm. might have been done. Mm Perhaps in regard to attention spans, which are very different today than when we were coming up, perhaps there would have to be editing of songs that take place on radio 
that would give people a tighter, mm. you know, a, a tighter product to focus on. And uh, and please, please, and this I know this sounds odd for a person who came up, you know, selling the commercials on radio. You gotta reduce that amount of commercials. You yeah. gotta. You gotta take that down particularly in in some formats uh, sports radio and news radio and so forth it it, it is ri- ridiculously high number of spots that seem even higher than they are uh, and i have to ask you just to get a comment all political views aside on just the state of the news media which is a huge question but i i remark that when you were at wcas when you were at some of these the progressive stations, this is my opinion, the news was delivered with more objectivity, with more attention to detail, getting it right. No matter what the point of view that the, the newscasters had and the news editors had, am I off base? You're not off base, using WCAS as an example, or WBCN. I mean, mm. uh, you know, with, when they had Danny Schechter, I, and of course we had Judith Brackley and Matt, Matt Schaefer. And I mean, our... Our editorial outlook was, you know, very far left. You know, I mean, you know, we were we were only steps away from the lunatic fringe in regards to some of, some of the coverage. Sure. But looking at today's news, I'm going to use the word lazy, and I'm finding that phrasing or terminologies are repeated over and over and over again. It's almost as if there's somebody that you respect and you find out what they're saying and then you start repeating that. And I just find a tremendous amount of laziness in regard to it. Yeah, news has become what somebody thought or said or speculated on as opposed to what actually might have happened. It's a strange dystopian style approach to the world when you quote an unnamed source that heard it from another unnamed source and it's so much opinion, but that we could do miles and miles of shows on these topics. However, what you just said is a great example, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it it really is a great example. So, so what's the present Rich Brody all about? Are you still getting up at uh, ridiculous hours? No, no, I, I don't. I'm semi-retired <laughs> now. I retired from radio, and uh, uh, funny thing happened, uh, you know, where my clients started calling me, they're going, well, there's got to be a way we can stay together somehow. Mm-hmm. I go, well, I'm not going to be doing radio advertising sales anymore. He goes, well, could you take over our website? We'd we'd like to be number one when people do organic searches. Mm, yeah, I could do that. And- You've never stopped asking questions. You've never stopped being curious. That's one of the reasons I love this business. I get to ask questions and learn stuff every time I crack the mic and even before that. You seem to be, I don't want to put words, you seem to be doing the same thing and having a ball doing it. I am so pleased that you have seized upon that. I love learning and I love listening. I know that right now, here I am talking, that you'd think I wouldn't love listening, but I do love listening and I do love learning. Well, I'm right there with you and we've been friends for many, many, friends and colleagues for many years. This was a treat because uh, I've been threatening to invite you. I finally (laughs) made good and you came through with Flying Colors. Rich Brody, thank you so much. And God bless and continued success and happiness and good health. Thank you. Richard Brody, an all-around great guy and a terrific broadcaster. So nice to reunite here on the podcast. This podcast being on mic with Jordan Rich 
is published by Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, is produced at Chart Productions in Boston, where we produce a slew of other podcasts, audiobooks, commercials, narrations, and more. You can check out a lot more about me and my book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, available as an audiobook, by visiting my website, jordanrich.com. Thanks, as always, to you for checking us out, for subscribing and downloading this podcast. Ratings and reviews are very helpful as we spread the word, and we appreciate it. Till next time, this is Jordan saying be well so you can do good. Take care.